Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin. On the night of the 28th of February 1942, an unequal naval battle took place in the northern approaches to Sunda Strait. This strait lays between the islands of Java and Sumatra in present-day Indonesia, but at that time was part of the Dutch East Indies. The battle involved the Australian light cruiser HMAS Perth, commanded by the charismatic Captain Heck Waller, in company with the US heavy cruiser USS Houston, commanded by Captain Albert Brooks. The battle came to pass as these Australian and US units encountered a powerful Japanese force of six cruisers plus destroyers, which was escorting the Japanese Western Java invasion convoy. The ensuing battle is one of the most heroic in the annals of the Australian and American navies. It came to symbolise the close comradeship between the two navies. The exploits of these ships in this battle have meant that their names carry a very proud heritage in each navy. In a previous episode, we discussed the earlier battle of the Java Sea, and I'm rejoined by that panel. They are Mr Mike Carlton, a journalist and the best-selling author of a number of books on Australian naval history. These include his 2010 book, Cruiser, which covers the life and loss of HMAS Perth and her crew. Rear Admiral James Goldrick, who has written extensively on naval history. And Dr Ian Fenningworth, who is a retired naval captain, and he has written 10 books, including his 2007 book, The Australian Cruiser Perth, and his 2012 biography of Perth surgeon, Dr Stan Stenning, titled In Good Hands. We're also very lucky on this occasion to welcome to the discussion, online from Orlando, Florida, retired Rear Admiral Jeff Harley. Jeff had a distinguished seagoing career, and his destroyer, USS Milius, served in company with RAN ships during the Iraq War. He's currently writing his PhD on the career of First World War US Admiral William Sims and his influence on interoperability between navies. Thank you all for joining me. Well, first off, Ian Fenningworth, in the episode on the Battle of the Java Sea, we left the surviving Allied ships returning to the port of Batavia. Can you take up the story from there? When did they next sail? Yeah, fine. Um, yes, just to recap, um, the quote from Heck Waller, I now had under my command one undamaged six-inch cruiser, one eight-inch cruiser with very little ammunition and no guns aft. I had no destroyers. He'd taken the decision to leave the battle rather than carry out his orders by the Dutch Admiral Helfrich that he should uh, sell his life dearly but keep attacking. I'm sure that was a relief to everybody on board. And they set off for um, for the port of Tanjong Priok, which was now uh, Jakarta, was Batavia in those days. They arrived there at uh, 2 p.m. on the afternoon after the battle, 28th of February. Note the time. Um, it was in the afternoon and everybody was tired. They'd been on the go for five consecutive days and they spent a whole day in a sea battle, uh, all in a tropical climate, all with no air conditioning. So everybody was strung out. The sight that greeted them when they arrived in Tanjung was not encouraging. Uh, the Japanese had visited the, the port with a number of air raids, uh, done their best to wreck the place, damage wharves, buildings, and there was an oil tank mouldering, covering the whole place with smoke. Uh, the issue that was unfolding before them was the fact that the authorities had decided they were going to abandon Tanjong Priok, that all these civil shipping that could be moved had got out of the port the day before. Um, the uh, naval shipping had sailed as now titled the Western Striking Force 
to see if we could find a, another Japanese assault force coming down on the island from on the western end, and there was just two ships left. Um, the decision had been taken that they were going to destroy all the naval warehouses, so they'd been flung open to all comers uh, before they were blown up. And the, uh, the, in other words, the whole place was a mess. The water mains had been destroyed. Ships had to try to refuel, rearm, and, and take on stores. Uh, they had to take on water from tankers rather than from um, there was little ammunition for them. There was no 8-inch ammunition at all for Houston, uh, very little 6-inch for Perth. There was some 4-inch, which Perth took for their secondary armament. Uh, the discipline in the area was, was deteriorating rapidly and the Dutch refused to fuel both cruisers to capacity. Their belief was that, in fact, there were Dutch ships still remaining who were going to come to the port and needed to have fuel and they took no notice of the advice that there were no more Dutch ships to come. But Perth sailed when she had only half tanks. Uh, the story is that, that the Dutch completely refused to provide any fuel at all to Houston, uh, which left her in a difficult condition. Um, I'll explain that shortly. Uh, just before they were due to sail, um, there was an air attack by the Japanese and the dockies fled. There were no tugs, no one to let go of the lines, and the pilot didn't turn up when a computer sail. All in all, it was a pretty depressing time. In the meantime, while the ships were trying to rebridge and get ready to sail, uh, the two commanding officers had visited naval headquarters. It was also pretty much in a shambles. They'd completed their reports on the battle on the way back. Uh, and uh, I should point out, this was the first major action between major fleet units on the surface um, between the Japanese and the Allied forces. So they had a lot of knowledge that they needed to share um, so that people could analyse uh, the tactics used by the Japanese and the effectiveness and quality of their ships. Uh, they could, in another atmosphere, have been debriefed properly, but they had neither the time and there was no one to do the debriefing. Uh, Admiral Helfrich was not only uninformed about the state of his forces following the battle, hence the belief there were Dutch destroyers surviving. But he was also very upset with Waller that he'd withdrawn the two ships from the battle. Uh, Collins later commented, um, Admiral Collins, uh, sorry, Commodore Collins at the point, who was then in the headquarters, uh, report, said that Waller's report indicated frustration, inability of the Allied force to work together. Uh, but that he stressed the effective use by the Japanese of their long lance torpedoes. And the other intriguing thing was the use of their float planes, ships, uh, aircraft carried in the ships uh, at night, which the Allies didn't do, using flares to illuminate and show up the Allied ships. If only more attention had been paid to those two points, we could have saved ourselves a lot of grief later in the war. Uh, as well, Helfrich had this other looming challenge I referred to was a Japanese force at sea, and it turned out that, in fact, waiting for reinforcement from uh, Admiral Takita's force. 58 ships, transports, uh, carrying the entire Japanese 16th Army, which is going to be landed on the west end of the, the island of Java. Uh, they had very little information about it, like subsequently it transpired that there were a number of reports, not only located, but identified 
uh, this convoy in detail. The problem was that they were reporting to an Air Force headquarters, not a naval headquarters, and it seems that the communications between the two were not to the least. So he'd sailed what ships he had uh, as the Western Striking Force early that morning to try to find this group. They did not, and their orders would continue on to Sri Lanka if they had not seen them. Um, the orders, therefore, the issue to the two captains were that they should sail with the Dutch destroyer Evertsen, which was the only other warship in harbour, uh, and take the route via Sunda Strait, which is assumed to be clear of enemy, uh, proceed well south into the Indian Ocean, having cleared the strait, and then at, at dusk uh, enter or approach the port of Chilichap on the south coast uh, where Hel Helfrich was uh, regrouping what naval forces he had. Um, the only warships they expected to find were some Dutch patrol boats and the ships of an Australian uh, corvette squadron which had been established in the strait as to watch for Japanese shipping. Um, so as, as dusk fell, as I said, without a pilot or tugs, no one to let go of the lines, um, the two ships set sail. Uh, signalling Everton to join them. Uh, she hadn't got her orders. She was told to hurry up and get them and to catch up with them as they slipped out into the Java Sea through the swept channel and turned westward towards Sunder Strait. Well, Jeff Harley, into this sort of chaotic parlous situation, let's introduce USS Houston. Now, we come across USS Houston earlier in the, in the Java Sea episode, but can you tell us something of the ship and of her uh, commanding officer, Captain Albert Roots. Certainly, and first let me thank you for inviting me to participate in this panel. Uh, I'm very honored uh, because I first, first saw firsthand the ties between our two great navies uh, when I served under Royal Australian Navy Admiral Peter Jones in Operation Iraqi Freedom. And because our topic today, I think, reflects the extraordinary bonds between two nations that have defended the international order side by side for a century and more. So the story of USS Houston, nicknamed the galloping ghost of the Java coast, in part because the Imperial Japanese Navy had previously declared the Houston destroyed during their invasion of the Philippines. It's an amazing story, one of resilience and courage against impossible odds. So first let's look at the history of the ship. USS Houston was commissioned in 1930, at the beginning of the Great Depression. And Houston was well known before the war in the United States because she was President Roosevelt's favorite ship. The president even sailed with her on some longer voyages, including through the Panama Canal more than once. The ship was specifically configured to accommodate a president who was confined to a wheelchair. And the president was famous for remembering the names of the crew and for fishing whenever possible using the ship's boats. Now, Houston was built to be a light cruiser because of her thin armor, but was redesignated as a heavy cruiser with the stroke of a pen after the 1930 London Naval Treaty because that treaty required ships with eight-inch guns to be designated as heavy cruisers. So as the World War approached, Houston became the flagship of the U.S. fleet in 1938 and then became the flagship of the U.S. Asiatic fleet in November 1940 under Admiral Thomas Seahart who needed a capable flagship with the whispers of conflict in the offing. Houston was that ship. 
Houston had nine eight-inch guns, eight open mount, five-inch anti-aircraft guns, as well as smaller caliber arms. But her aft turret, as previously mentioned, was destroyed on 4 February 1942, fighting 37 Japanese bombers, which limited her punch to only six eight-inch guns. On the day of this battle, in 4 October 1942, Houston lost 48 men and another 20 wounded in an initiation to the horrible and pers personal costs of war. This fact's important to the story today because it was after that battle in early February that Rooks was given the option of withdrawing from the Dutch East Indies for repairs to the aft turret, but Houston's captain, Albert Brooks, opted to, Rooks, opted to stay in the fight so as not to further weaken the ABDA, the American, British, Dutch, and Australian forces. So Captain Rooks was 50 years old, absolutely beloved by his crew. He was seen as a, as a sort of minor deity, according to author James Horns Fisher, uh, because of his gifted leadership and exceptional seamanship. Of humble origins from Washington State, Rooks graduated from the United States Naval Academy in 1914, served in ships and submarines prior to his assignment in Houston. In Navy circles, Rooks was known as a bit of an intellectual, and when teaching at the Naval War College, he was, without sarcasm, even seen as a second coming of Alfred Thayer Mahan because of his understanding of sea power. Rooks was confident, level-headed, and some might say prescient, since even before the war, he had a good grasp of Japan's capabilities and even predicted to his wife, Edith, that he would likely not be coming home from Asia. Sadly, the war took its toll and probably deprived the U.S. Navy of an exceptional flag officer. Brooks was quite likely destined to be a flag officer because his assignment to Houston was for two years, the absolute minimum to be eligible for flag selection. But we all know that ships are alive because of their crew, and the ship's company going into the Battle of Sunda Strait was 1,061 aboard, including a 74-man Marine detachment. And as we'll see, the resilient crew was well-trained, but was simply overwhelmed by impossible odds. Mike Carlton, Ian's given us a bit of a hint as to the fluid nature of, uh, of military operations in the Dutch East Indies at the time, but how was the overall situation looking? It was fluid and rapidly deteriorating. Can you give us an overview? Uh, yeah, <laughs> just one word, does it, really? Chaos. Uh, everywhere you looked, uh, north from Australia anyway, the, the Japanese were rampant, uh, triumphant, and seemingly uh, unstoppable. The point's not often made, but Imperial Japan had achieved a truly astounding feat of planning and logistics by land, sea, and air. Uh, unmatched beyond anything uh, the world had ever seen in, in peace or war. And from December 1941, coordinated to the hour across no less than 80 degrees of longitude from Hawaii in the east to Malaya in the west. It was amazing. Hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of men, whole armies, infantry divisions, tanks, fleets of warships, transports, supply ships, hospitals, brothels, uh, the, the fuel and ammunition to sustain them all. It was quite extraordinary, and the Allies were totally and utterly unable to match it. Uh, by early 1942, the, uh, the Netherlands, East Indies uh, were doomed. Uh, Singapore had fallen on the 15th of February. Uh, Japan was sweeping southeast to pick off the resource-rich islands of the, of the Dutch Empire. 
Another prong of the Japanese advance was, uh, was about to take the Philippines. Now, Sumatra, Java, and Borneo were a rich prize for the Japanese for oil and rubber, all sorts of other uh, bits and pieces they needed to prosecute the war effort. ABDICOM, the, uh, the Allied Command, an acronym for American, British, Dutch, and Australian Command, based largely uh, in West Java, battered by defeat after defeat, had uh, collapsed in utter confusion, uh, outnumbered, outgunned, uh, out everything. Uh, its last Supreme Allied Commander, if you like, the, the British General Archibald Wavell, had told Winston Churchill on the 21st of February that Java was a lost cause. And he quit and uh, went off to India. Uh, the naval commander, the American Admiral Hart, uh, also left, uh, pleading ill health. But allegedly, it was said, because uh, President Roosevelt didn't want uh, an American heading an yet another naval defeat. The, uh, the local Dutch, however, uh, decided to fight on regardless. Uh, it was futile and, and foolish, really. Uh, all Abdicom had was a handful of, of naval assets, a few crews and destroyers. Troll boats, one or two, hardly anything to, to speak of. No aircraft of any sort, of any particular use. And they were picked off with almost contemptuous ease, one by one. By the end of February, there was almost nothing left. The only two Dutch cruisers had been lost in the Battle of the Java Sea at the end of February. Destroyers had gone as well. Uh, the one available British cruiser was, uh, was virtually crippled. Uh, pretty much all that remained of the force which had battled in the Java Sea were the, uh, the Australian cruiser Perth and, and uh, the uh, USS Houston. The Japanese Eastern Invasion Force, which had won there at the, uh, the Java Sea battle, had landed in East Java and taken the great naval and air base at Surabaya. And that Western Invasion Force of some 35,000 troops, accompanied by a stronger escorts of cruisers and destroyers, was heading south towards uh, West Java. So in short, uh, the jaws, the, uh, the claws, the pincers of the Japanese invasion were closing. James Goldrick, Ian, Jeff and Mike have brought us up to the point now on, at 7pm on the night that Perth and Houston sailed. We've had a bit of an indication about the material state, but can you tell us a little bit more about how the ships were as they sailed? And also, why was Heck Waller in command? What was his plan? Well, as, as has been said, the intent was to get Chilichat uh, to, uh, in theory, to wait, await reassignment. In practice, uh, my view is that the ships would have uh, headed back to Australia um, straight afterwards as neither of them was really battle ready. Um, as has been already said, uh, not only was Houston's uh, after turret out of action, uh, but Houston was down to 50 rounds per gun uh, for her main armament. And uh, that, I'm sure, was because they'd redistributed uh, ammunition from the after magazines to the forehead. Perth was down to 20 rounds a gun. Uh, both ships uh, only had about 50% fuel. And I think they were pretty worn down by the action that, all, that had already happened. So Waller's plan was to go through the Sunda Straits round to the port, which is on the other side of Java. And then I think he would have hoped to... Uh, get cleared to uh, Australia after that. Waller was the senior man on the spot. What's also um, mentioned, but, uh, mentioned, but I think needs to be emphasised, is that also Waller was by far the most combat experienced officer present. 
um, having been through the Mediterranean um, on both sides. Uh, so not only was he formally um, logically the senior person, uh, he was also tactically the most expert, tactically the most experienced, and very much the most battle-hardened person present. Although I think he was um, starting to show signs of the strain, uh, which of course weren't only um, wasn't only from the events of the previous few weeks, but of course he'd spent all that time in the Mediterranean commanding the Scrap Iron Flotilla. There was, of course, another ship uh, in this, which was the Dutch destroyer Evertsen. Uh, it's been mentioned that she was in port and was uh, Waller expected her to sail with them. Uh, Evertsen had got mislaid from the Western Striking Force with Hobart and had returned to um, fuel and get further orders. Uh, but in fact, although the intention of uh, Helfrich was that she go with Perth and uh, Houston, um, she didn't have orders and wasn't ready to go and then ended up having to sail uh, anything between one and two hours after the cruisers um, and hadn't caught up to them by the time of the night action. In Finningworth, as the ships approached the northern entrance to the Sunda Strait, the lookout sightened a darkened shape. Now, Hickwaller ordered a flashing light challenge. What, what was it they'd actually found? Well, they'd run into the, the force that was protecting the army landing at Batam Bay. Um, while the Allied cruisers had been heading for Tanjong Priok, Admiral Akagi had split his force and sent two heavy cruisers and a light cruise with five destroyers to join this force under Admiral Hatak and Zaburo. Uh, further north, in fact, there was a separate uh, Japanese forts, including an aircraft carrier and heavy cruisers under Admiral Kurita. They weren't involved in the battle, but they were hanging around. The Japanese uh, landing of the troops was scheduled for 2200, and as the troop ships went into the bay, um, Hata distributed his destroyers in a screen around them to protect them from any uh, attack or approach by Allied forces. So the one, the ship that was sighted by the Perth lookouts was in fact the um, easternmost escort of destroyer, um, which was uh, waiting there to report on any movements and in fact had already reported the two Allied ships to, to his commanding officer. So Fubuki uh, was the one who was challenged. Uh, Waller apparently thought this might be one of the Australian corvettes, but of course it wasn't. And Fubuki uh, replied in a strange with, with a strange signal projector that they didn't recognise on board Perth, and then loosing torpedoes, he headed back to join the rest of the screen. So they'd stumbled across a landing heavily supported by, uh, by both the destroyers in close inshore and the heavy cruisers further offshore, uh, and that was on. Mike Carlton, the ensuing action was very fierce, lasting really just over an hour for Perth. Can you tell us what happened in Perth? Yeah, sure. Um, the Japanese were not sure at first what they got. Uh, in particular, uh, Perth's silhouette, she had two tall vertical upright funnels that gave her a silhouette quite similar to a much bigger, uh, more powerful British King George V-class battleship, uh, an easy mistake to make at night. And so the Japanese panicked. Firing off torpedoes left, right, and centre, and actually sinking at least one of their own uh, troop transports. The 
the Japanese commanding general, uh, Imamura, was actually blown overboard from his ship by a Japanese torpedo and spent three or so hours deeply unamused clinging to a lump of wood before he was rescued. But pretty quickly, the, uh, the Japanese got their act together. And both Perth and, uh, and Houston, uh, astern of her, uh, were hammered and lashed with a storm of shells, uh, big and small. Perth's captain, Heck Waller, was uh, on the bridge, of course, conning the ship, uh, trying at first with his uh, long Mediterranean experience, uh, trying at first to anticipate the next fall of shock and twisting and turning and ducking and diving and weaving uh, to avoid it. But soon enough, uh, that became pretty impossible as the, uh, as the enemy got the range and kept closing in wave after wave of destroyers coming at them and uh, cruisers firing a, a, as well. Uh, the shells rained down and fairly soon uh, men uh, began to die, first among them the, uh, the ship's youngest officer, uh, midshipman Frank Tranby White, a 19-year-old farmer's son from Queensland, killed on the, uh, on the signal bridge. Uh, in an engagement like this, only, only a handful of the crew actually get to see what's going on, the watch on the bridge and um, uh, some of the gunners are on deck. Below decks in the, uh, in the engine and, uh, and boiler rooms and the magazines and wherever, it must have been terrifying as, as the ship heaved and lurched and shuddered uh, beneath the blows, the shells rained down, the hull plates and the, and the bulkheads groaning under the strain. Uh, and at around midnight, more and more men were dying. Bodies were piling up on the, on the deck. Uh, the gunnery officer on the bridge told Waller there was hardly any uh, six-inch ammunition left. And some of the four-inch guns uh, had begun to fire star shell and practice rounds, anything, just to, to keep shooting. And so Captain Waller decided there was only one course of, of action left. He would try to make a break for it uh, to force a passage through the enemy uh, into the Sunda Strait. And he, he set a new course, uh, knowing that um, uh, Captain Rooks in the Houston were, would follow behind him. But the first torpedo hit Perth as they were just settling onto that new course. Uh, it penetrated the starboard side between the, uh, the forward engine room and A boiler room, killing everyone there, including uh, the engineer commander, Dolly Gray, and men above in, uh, in a damaged control party. And that explosion sent Perth lurching upwards, heaving almost out of the water like, like a bathtub toy. Uh, men were tossed around like dolls, and those on deck were, were drenched by a rushing wall of seawater. Uh, the ship slumped back into the water, listing the starboard and slowing noticeably as, uh, as she lost uh, as she lost weight, she lost power. Uh, Waller's words, words were recorded at that time. Christ, that's torn it, uh, he said. And he uh, gave the order to prepare to uh, abandon ship. And the gunnery officer was abandon ship, sir? He said, no, he said, just, just prepare. Meanwhile, uh, below in the sick bay and uh, in the wardroom, the two doctors, uh, Sergeant Lieutenant Commander Eric Timms and uh, Sam Stenning, uh, were working in a butcher's shambles. They had white overalls stained with blood and viscera, uh, and they were just bringing the wounded down to the sick bay in a steady stream. And these are the words of, uh, of one of the ship's officers. Our doctors were attempting the impossible task of treating men with arms and legs blown away, riddled with shrapnel, burned beyond recognition by blast. The treatable injuries were bound up. The serious cases were simply consigned to the growing pile of bodies in the starboard waist of the ship 
which because of the violent changes of course spread the pile across the whole side of the deck and it grew only worse. Uh, another torpedo hit them further forward, just below A turret. And again, the cruiser staggered like a, a wounded animal. That's, again, she was still moving through the water, but that was it. Uh, Captain Waller recognised that all was lost and uh, now gave the order to uh, abandon ship. Men began to uh, leap into the water. Some struggled to lower boats and rafts, but not one boat got away, perhaps because they were smashed by the, the shell fire, may have been stuck in the you know, davits falls or whatever. And then two more torpedoes hit in fairly quick succession, one to port and one to starboard, uh, killing more men trapped below decks and others in the water uh, hammered by their concussion. And towards the end, uh, there were only three figures left on the bridge, uh, Captain Waller, uh, the gunnery officer, Peter Hancox, and uh, Lieutenant Willie Gay, the officer to watch. Hancox was bleeding from uh, a shrapnel wound near his ear, and he said to uh, Gay, let's get off before uh, she turns over, he said. Gay, the officer of the watch, said, what about Heck, Heck Waller? Yeah, the captain was standing a short distance away from him uh, in his May West, both hands uh, on the bridge rail, leaning over and staring down at the, uh, the silent, six-inch turrets below. He says he won't come, Hancox replied. Waller heard that and turned to look at them. Get off the bridge, he said, and that was all. Peter Hancox uh, went down the port ladder and was killed when a, a shell or a bullet or another piece of shrapnel smashed into it. Willie Gay, the young lieutenant, went down the starboard side uh, unscathed. and He was the last man to see Hector McDonald Laws Waller alive. Willie Gay uh, survived the war. Perth still had a little way on her, although she was heavily down by the bow and uh, at least two of her uh, propellers were out of the water, still turning. Some of the men watching there in the water uh, said she steamed out. And the last sight for many was her, her battle ensign at the mainmast, a splash of red, white and blue lit by the Japanese searchlights. And then she went down, struggling in the water, her... Uh, Assistant Navigator, Lieutenant Lloyd Burgess, noted the time exactly on his watch, 12.25 a.m. on Sunday, the 1st of March, 1942. The battle for Perth had lasted uh, a little more than an hour. Meanwhile, in the distance, uh, the USS Houston was fighting on. So, Jeff Harley, how was the situation for Houston? The uh, situation for Houston was pretty dire indeed. And Houston was astern of Perth and followed Perth's actions. Uh, Houston's last known communications was a message sent at 11.30 p.m. to the district commander, Radio Corregidor, and the chief of naval operations, declaring enemy forces engaged. So after the valiant HMAS Perth succumbed to enemy fire and slipped below the surface of the sea, Houston fought on for about another hour and, and was surrounded by Japanese ships so close that some were within 50 cal machine gun range, meaning that one could hear the screams of the enemy that carried in the night air when struck by Houston's guns. Houston continued fighting whilst being struck by Japanese rounds over and over again. Japanese torpedoes would strike the Houston. Ultimately, Houston was exhausted of ammunition Houston even resorted to firing star shells, illumination rounds, and flares at the Japanese 
after the other ammunition had run out. After numerous hits and exhausted of her large caliber ammunition, Captain Rooks finally ordered abandoned ship and then was struck down by shrapnel. The engineers responded to the order to abandon ship, secured the last boiler, but inertia kept the way upon the ship, making the use of the small boats impossible. This caused the executive officer to momentarily belay the abandoned ship order until he saw that there was no more that could be done and he reissued the order to abandon ship. As Houston sank below the relatively calm seas while still making way, her battle flag was still flying, illuminated by a full moon and occasional Japanese searchlights. A Marine up in the mast continued to fire his 50 cal machine gun until the very end. And the Houston took most of her loyal and resilient crew into the depths and into the arms of God, but the galloping ghost of the Java coast was no more. James Goldrick, the Japanese did not get off unscathed, however. How did they fare? Um, not all that well. Um, one point about night actions is they're incredibly difficult to reconstruct. And even the Japanese don't seem to be completely sure what everybody was doing that night and uh, who did what and with which and to whom. Um, their losses in total uh, were the large minesweeper W2 and four transports, um, one of which indeed was the headquarters ship for the Japanese invasion force and uh, Lieutenant General Imamura uh, on board the Ryu, Ryujo Maru, in fact, ended up having to swim ashore. Um, but what does seem to have happened, and again, it's this thing about night actions, they get incredibly confused, is although uh, Perth and Houston both achieved some uh, success with gunfire, uh, the Japanese destroyer Fubuki, which was uh, pursuing them from the east, uh, made the mistake of firing her torpedoes uh, in a westerly direction uh, towards Perth and Houston. Uh, but in fact, what was on the other side of Perth and Houston were the Japanese transports. And it's most likely that the four transports, which were uh, sunk, although uh, it was so shallow that several, several of them were later um, salvaged, uh, and W2 were actually sunk by torpedoes uh, from the Fubuki. Um, we do know pretty certain that uh, Perth damaged at least one Japanese destroyer, um, the Shirayuki. Um, it would appear that at least one other Japanese destroyer, the Harakaze, uh, was quite severely damaged, and my belief is that was probably by Houston. Um, but the Japanese records aren't that good for the amount of damage various ships took. But certainly it was um, serious losses for the Japanese, although it didn't, in fact, interrupt the invasion. Mike, what was the fate of those very few survivors left from Perth? Well, the, uh, the raw figures tell the story, really. Uh, Perth had a ship's company of 681 uh, that included four RAAF people for her aircraft and, and some civilian canteen people as well. Uh, and 350 of them either went down with the ship or drowned uh, in the Sunda Strait, swept away by the uh, the current out to sea. Uh, and I've actually swum there right right above the spot where, where Perth uh, still lies. I dived overboard from a yacht when we're doing a film. 
And that current uh, is there today, as perhaps you'd expect, running at about four or five knots, pretty much uh, northeast to southwest, and I could feel myself drifting away as I floated. Uh, so it was more than enough to defeat a, a tired or, or a wounded man struggling for survival. Uh, some managed to cling to bits and pieces of flotsam and jetsam. Some had made it onto rafts. Perth's uh, executive officer had very sensibly found some timber rafts uh, at Tanjung Priok before they sailed, and he thought these might come in handy and just shove them somewhere on the, on the upper deck. They did indeed come in handy, and many lives were saved with them. Uh, some, some of the, uh, the floating men were eventually picked up by a, a Japanese destroyer whose captain treated them rather well, actually, uh, bound their wounds, uh, fed them and apologised later that he would have to hand them over to the army, who would not treat them so well, he said. Uh, they never found out the name of that Japanese destroyer, but uh, the survivors spoke well of, it, of, of her captain to, for years afterwards. 328 men made it uh, ashore on Java. Uh, four of them died there. Uh, at least one of them uh, murdered by local villagers uh, for reasons unspecified. The others perhaps succumbed to their, to their wounds, their injuries. Uh, the rest were eventually rounded up by the, uh, by the advancing Japanese, some of them after uh, the most incredible struggles uh, to survive and to escape. Uh, I'm reminded again of perhaps the, um, the bravest man I think I've ever met, uh, Paymaster Sub-Lieutenant Gavin Campbell, who uh, limped ashore with a broken leg that had been splintered for him in the water by a, a seaman, found a few sticks and a bit of rope and splintered his leg together. And he, Campbell and, uh, and, and a sailor, limped, hobbled and lurched pretty well down the length of the west coast of Java, uh, Campbell in the most excruciating pain, until eventually they were found by a Dutch nurse who hid them in the hospital for a bit, but uh, the Japanese got them. Uh, Gavin survived the war. But most were rounded up. They were rounded up, taken to a prisoner of war camp near present-day uh, Jakarta. And after a few months, most of them uh, were then packed on board ship and sent to the, uh, the Changi jail uh, in Singapore, which was uh, a vast improvement. Changi has a, a grim reputation in Australian folklore as a, as a hell camp. But in fact, uh, it wasn't too bad at all. Prisoners were largely left to their own devices, guarded by uh, Indian Sikh guards, actually. And it wasn't such a bad place compared to the hell that some of them would eventually endure as uh, slave labourers on the infamous Burma Siam Railway. Those who'd been on the railway regarded Changi as a, as a holiday resort. <laughs> Towards the, uh, the end of the war, some of those uh, Perth men, along with a lot of Australian army people, were packed off in the so-called hell ship sent to Japan to work uh, in Japanese mines and factories. Uh, and the grim toll is 106 men uh, died in captivity, most of them on the, uh, the Burma-Siam Railway. And just 211 uh, made it back home after the war. In, uh, I, there is one survivor left, to the best of my knowledge, there's one survivor left, uh, Frank McGovern, who was a, an 18, 19-year-old able seaman when uh, Perth was lost. He's still alive today, still hale and hearty. And I talked to him uh, just a week ago before, we make it, before making this, uh, this podcast. Uh, and he's in fine fettle. He's in great shape. And he said, <laughs> his words linger. He said, if the bloody Japs couldn't get me, this coronavirus is not gonna. And I think he's probably right. I most certainly hope he is. Well, Jeff, how was it for 
surviving ships company of Houston. And and how many actually survived the war? Yeah, 1,061 men on board Houston at the start of the battle. Only 368 survived by swimming to shore. Another 110 die in captivity due to neglect and disease in various prison camps, uh, with many working, as mentioned before, uh, to build the railroad between Burma and Siam. Uh, this was immortalized in the book and the movie Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, and ultimately, at the end of the day, after the sinking, after the battle, uh, after the horrendous captivity, less than a quarter of Houston's crew make it home repatriated to America. Ian Finneyworth, Mike's just mentioned the remarkable surgeons in Perth. Now, you've written a biography of Sam Stenning. What did he do during those years of captivity? Well, um, it is a remarkable story and very different one from most of the survivors from Perth. Um, he was one of the people picked up by that Japanese uh, destroyer, but he eventually found his way to the camp at Sarang, which is where the prisoners of war were kept where he worked with uh, survivors from Houston. There were two, I think, three medical people from Houston survived, uh, trying to treat the wounded from the battle and also trying to com combat a, an outbreak of dysentery caused by the war conditions. But all of a sudden, in April, all the Allied uh, medical officers were plucked out of the camp, leaving just one to look after the 1,200 or so prisoners and sent in a uh, troop ship to Japan. They were wanted there to treat Allied prisoners of war because the Japanese were going to bring the prisoners to Japan to work in various conditions. Um, he, uh, he first had to go through four months of interrogation, and one that's why, at a, at a Japanese Navy camp near Yokosuka, uh, and uh, where beatings and starvation were the methods of getting people to give information. And then surprisingly, he found himself in what was a show camp. It was specially built so the representatives of the International Red Cross could come and see how well the Japanese were treating their prisoners. That didn't last long because the Japanese had got their prisoners of war and now wanted doctors to work with them. So he was sent first to um, the uh, Kyushu, uh, where he dealt with the, the uh, results, uh, sad results, of one of these hellship voyages which had practically destroyed the whole uh, outfit of, uh, of British prisoners in Singapore. Uh, and then to uh, Nagasaki, which, of course, is, was then and is now an important shipbuilding area where there were several uh, factories and, and shipyards. He worked there with uh, Allied prisoners, no Australians. Throughout, he, he maintained a, a great record of keeping people alive who should be dead. Uh, and uh, he learned a great deal. Um, at great cost to himself, uh, but he, he didn't see any Australian Navy prisoners until he actually got back. James Goldrick, the fate of the two cruisers and their men wasn't immediately known to the Allies. Could you fill us in a little on this aspect of the story? No, it wasn't. Um, Hobart, I think, picked up a an enemy contact report from Perth, but that was about all the direct uh, information uh, that the uh, allies had about the ship's fate. Um, it was complete shambles south of uh, Java as well. And of course, uh, Yarra would be lost uh, very soon afterwards, together with a number of other allied uh, warships and merchant ships. 
and uh, there was no certainty that the ship uh, where the ships had gone they they simply became overdue and i think uh, online you can find uh, the initial uh, signals asking them to asking them to report in my understanding is in fact that there wasn't real clarity um, even when the uh, some circumstances of the ship's loss were confirmed uh, towards the end of 1942 and a real idea of what had happened to the ships, you know, in tactical detail, didn't really come until the um, survivors of one of the uh, hell ships that had been sunk by a US wolf pack, a submarine wolf pack in September 1944, uh, were picked up by the American submarines and uh, brought back into Allied hands. And I think at that point, only then did the story become clear, because really, all they knew was that the ships had encountered superior Japanese forces by surmise and had been destroyed. Uh, Jeff Harley, Albert Brooks, CEO of Houston, was later awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Look, for those listeners unfamiliar with this award, can you describe the nature of the Congressional Medal of Honor and also tell us about Albert Brooks's citation? So our, our Medal of Honor is uh, our nation's highest personal military decoration that may be awarded to recognize U.S. service members who have distinguished themselves by acts of conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of life above and beyond the call of duty. So interestingly, Rook's award was for extraordinary heroism, outstanding courage, and distinguished service in the line of his profession as commanding officer of the USS Houston during the period 4 to 27 February. So note that it does not include the Battle of Sunda Straits. So this award really covers the actions of Houston in the Macassar Strait during which the aft gun turret was destroyed, and then Houston's performance in convoy escort duties from Darwin to Timor in the East Indies, in which another air attack by the Japanese was repulsed although the convoy was forced to return to Darwin, and finally, the Battle of the Java Sea, but not the heroic actions that we've described here today. And this seems curious, but as Admiral Goldrick said, it's a reflection that the Battle of Sunda Strait was not fully revealed until after the war, when prisoners of war were finally repatriated and then able to tell the amazing story of USS Houston. Uh, later, as additional recognition for the gallantry of Captain Rooks, uh, the U.S. Navy commissioned USS Rooks, a Fletcher-class destroyer, on 2 September 1944. Mike Carlton, as we talked about previously, Captain Hick Waller was mentioned in dispatches. Can you tell us a bit about this award? I'm interested in the parallels between um, Captain Rooks of the Houston and Captain Waller of, of Perth. They, they were similar, had similarities. Both were country boys. Uh, Rooks came from a small town in Washington State, as we said, which still only has 100 people in it. Um, Heck Waller was a, a country, the son of a country grocer in, in Victoria. Their careers ran similar. Uh, they were both, I think, marked for higher command had they lived. Uh, they both had sons who went into the Navy, uh, into the Navy after them. They actually met briefly in Tanjong Priok before they sailed for the Sunda Strait. You would love to have been a fly on the wall in, in Heck Waller's cabin as they sat there and had a drink. Waller was uh, an extraordinary figure, arguably the most 
hallowed, the most exalted fighting captain uh, of the RAN, admired and respected by, uh, by admirals and by the most uh, ordinary of ordinary seamen. And as I said, had he, had he lived, I'm pretty sure he would have become uh, an admiral himself. He'd been at war at sea since day one, September 1939, as, as James Goldrich pointed out. He was the most experienced combat officer on the, on the Allied side. He'd built this storied reputation as a destroyer captain and flotilla commander in the, uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, you know, taken part in fleet actions against the Italians, had uh, virtually led the naval relief of, uh, of the garrison at Tobruk and so on. Uh, and Heck was actually mentioned in dispatches not once but three times, uh, which doesn't happen a lot. Mentioned in dispatches simply means that your commanding officer writes uh, to his superior saying, what a, a terrific job you've done. Uh, it's not a medal per se, but uh, a little oak leaf cluster that you get to uh, attach to any other medals you might be wearing. Um, it doesn't exist anymore. It's, it's uh, and it went it petered out a few years ago. Uh, the first one, the first one that Heck got was uh, for quotes good service uh, in Greek waters, uh, and it, not much more is explained than that. There was an awful lot happening in Greek waters in, uh, in 1940 when Heck was there. The second one was for uh, courage, quote, I'm quoting again, courage, skill and devotion in operations off the, uh, the Libyan coast, which presumably would have been the supply run to and from uh, this, uh, Tobruk. And the third and final time, uh, and the mentioned dispatches doesn't exist anymore, as I said, but it was then one of only two decorations you could be awarded posthumously. Uh, the other one, of course, was the Victoria Cross. Uh, Heck got his mention in dispatches in 1946, four years after his death, for, quotes, gallantry and resolution uh, while serving in HMAS birth, unquote. I, uh, there's contention over this, and you can have an argument uh, anywhere sailors gather, I think, but I, I do believe. Uh, he should also have been awarded the Victoria Cross, his final two actions, the, uh, the Java Sea Battle and then the Sunda Strait, where he did indeed behave with conspicuous gallantry and resolve, but it never happened. Uh, there was an investigation a few years ago, uh, a commission of inquiry to see if more Victoria Crosses could be awarded posthumously many years after that war. It was decided that no, they couldn't. But... Uh, his name does live on in one of the, uh, the current Collins-class submarines, uh, HMAS Waller. But when uh, she's eventually decommissioned, uh, who knows? Uh, you would hope that the Navy does ensure that the name Waller uh, lives on immortal. Uh, Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about the afterlife of the relationship between Houston and Perth, between the US Navy, the Australian Navy, perhaps? I, I do think that there's an ongoing relationship, and in particular, the best example I can think of uh, is the sister city designation between Perth and Houston uh, that was established in 1984. And obviously, when we talk about the two great navies and the, the experiences that we share together, uh, I know from personal experience uh, that we stand by one another uh, forever and always. And Mike, just before we wrap up, you have a small anecdote about that relationship. Can you share that with us? It's, uh, it's a powerful image. Uh, a young bloke uh, named Arthur Bancroft, a seaman on board Perth, 
was being transported to Japan in one of those hell ships, which was sunk by uh, an American submarine pack on the 12th of September, 1944. Uh, there were a few survivors, quite a few, mostly Australian Army, four Perth sailors, uh, they were among them. And Arthur Bancroft floated around uh, on a makeshift raft in the, uh, the South China Sea for uh, five days. A submarine appeared on the horizon, vanished again. They thought uh, all was lost. Five days with nothing to eat or drink. Burnt uh, and blackened. Uh, his flaming red hair, he had Blood Bancroft was his nickname, Blood. Uh, hair matted like an old rope, eyes sunken in a in a, in a bearded face and skinny as a rake, they finally saw another submarine surface not far from them near the swells in the, and the conning tower rising up and down in the swell. Uh, the Americans recognised them and made to get them on board. Uh, Blood Bancroft refused to be helped on board. Now, weak from hunger and burnt uh, black by the sun, he managed to scramble up onto the, uh, the submarine's casing uh, came to attention, didn't have a hat, but he snapped off a salute anyway, and he said, uh, gave his name and, and number and requested permission to come on board. The uh, American sort of was one of the most marvellous things I'd ever seen. And every day on that date, the 17th of September, Blood Bancroft would uh, talk with the uh, uh, the submarine's executive officer, Jack Bennett. There'd be a phone call uh, across the Pacific as they touched base to uh, share their memories and to see that each man was still going strong. And that went on for until about, I think, five or eight years ago when, uh, when Jack, uh, when the Blood Bancroft finally died. But it was a beautiful anecdote and an example of, I think, of that friendship that stretches across the Pacific to this day. Well, finally, can I ask each of you for your thoughts at the end of this episode on the Battle of the Sunda Strait? Mike Carlton, let's start with you. Um, it was it was futile, and 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 my, my thought is largely at the tragedy of of lives lost in in pursuit of a political end. There was no strategic or tactical or strategic reason those ships to try and stem the Japanese advance. They would have been much better in, in simply sailing for a, a safe port in Australia or perhaps Salon, as some of them did. Uh, it was at the insistence of the Dutch that the, uh, the fight went on, although the Dutch commander we referred to, Helfrich, uh, took his portly hide off to Salon before the Japanese arrived, shouting over his back as he left, stand firm, everybody keep fighting. So it, it is the waste, I think, and it was the waste too that sat on the mind of Perth's survivors uh, over the years. That so many of their mates, friends, and in, in some cases, uh, one or two brothers, had gone down with the ship, been lost with the ship, or died later in camp for no strategic purpose whatsoever. And it really, I suppose, underlines the, the ultimate futility of, of war. Jeff Harley, how about from you? So I, I think that what history and, and warfare teaches us is that men and women, they, they fight for those who are standing next to us. And futile as it may have been, uh, this is an important story and it certainly needs to be told. I think it's because it's emblematic of the extraordinary relationship between the United States and Australia, but also between the two navies. 
history like the Battle of Sunda Strait needs to be shared with future generations, lest we forget. And history must commemorate a relationship that's forged in blood and battle, but most importantly, forged in trust and friendship. And finally, history must indeed guide the future, a future where our nations and our navies stand together in defending what is right and true. And I thank you all for allowing me to participate in this panel. Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure to have you. Ian Finneyworth, how about for you? Uh, hard act to follow, Jeff, but I don't think I can do better than the quote from you know, Shakespeare because it was that sort of thing when he was rallying his troops and saying, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that fought with us upon St Christmas Day. I think the, uh, the memorial, joint memorial in Arlington um, is, is, uh, is very evocative when it uses the phrase that the two ships are still standing watch <clears throat> over Sunda Strait. And I think that's the image which you all keep and treasure. And finally, James Goldrick, some thoughts from you. I think um, I'd back up Ian's point and add um, that I think it's particularly appropriate that the memorial in Arlington isn't simply the uh, little uh, tablet with the ship's names and the point that they're still on watch in Sunda Strait. It's also got a tree and the fact that the tree is growing and will continue to grow and I hope uh, prosper um, is I think indicative of the relationship between the navies and the fact that I think the relationship will, will continue that way. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to Mike Carlton, James Goldrick, Jeff Harley and Ian Fenningworth. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you all for joining us today and for more information on the Australian Naval History podcast series, simply search for Naval Studies Group in your search engine. Goodbye for now.